The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start. Uh, it's been a while since we've done this systematic theology, so I thought I'd, I'd give you again the overview of uh, Wayne Grudem's uh, book. Uh, I just so believe in the approach of um, uh, looking at the forest and the trees, the forest and the trees, um, so that we don't lose our way. Um, because I think that there's so much delight and so much power in the details of Scripture. But if you spend so much time on the details, you can forget where you are. Um, also, we're in the discipline of systematic theology, and so it's easy to forget where you are in that whole big picture as well. So did you all get the sheet, which has basically just the chapter titles? I think this is such a helpful thing. One of the best things you can do uh, for a nonfiction book um, is to read the table of contents, just find out basically what the author's saying. And I think that's especially true of systematic theologies. So what Grudem does is he breaks his work down into seven major sections. Uh, folks, we're in the fourth of the seven sections, okay? The seven sections are the doctrine of the Word of God, then the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and then we're in the section four, uh, the doctrines of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. After this will come the doctrine of the application of redemption, that's salvation, basically, how we, how we get saved. Then the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the future. That's where we're heading, all right? So far, with the Word of God, we've talked about you know, issues like the authority of Scripture, inerrancy. We've talked about clarity, uh, the necessity of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. And by the way, that, that doctrine is so vital in the Christian life. It's so vital in the life of the church. If you do not believe that the Scripture is sufficient to answer issues concerning the church, you're going to look elsewhere. And in the end, I've seen it again and again, elsewhere will end up more important than Scripture. It happens again and again. Jesus said very plainly in Matthew 15, you have a nice way or a fine way, speaking of the Pharisees, of setting aside the Word of God for the sake of your traditions. We still have that tendency. Uh, In in, um, ministry, it is so tempting to read the latest fad on how to grow your church and, and do all these techniques that are nowhere taught in Scripture but are working somewhere in some city. And, and you know, it's just so tempting to go in that direction. We have to believe in the f- sufficiency of Scripture. That's just so vital. Anyway, uh, doctrine of the Word of God. And we talked at that time about why we begin with the Word of God because all the other stuff is going to flow, all the rest of those chapters, the subsections are going to flow with uh, support from Scripture. So we needed to establish that the, that the Word of God, the Scripture, was sufficient and inerrant and, and authoritative to handle all of the other topics that we've covered since then. Eric, how many have there been? How many weeks have we done this? This is week 51. Do you realize how special that is? Next week will be a full year of systematic theology. You guys get one year. You know How many of you have been here for all 51? Raise your hand. There you go. Eric has. All right. <laughs> I don't think I've even been here for all of them. But anyway... <clears throat> Get the tapes, right? Get the whole set. Listen to them. Anyway, second section was doctrine of God, existence of God, knowability of God, then the incommunicable and communicable attributes. I still believe that an attribute study, a good sheet with the attributes of God, is a great foundation for personal worship. You know, just remember that God is a gracious and compassionate God, that he is sovereign, that he is uh, immutable. All of those things, so beautiful, so powerful. 
God in three persons, the doctrine of the Trinity. We looked at creation. That was a long time ago, but I love doing that one, that whole creation evolution issue uh, as we work through that. Um, still one of my favorite parts of this study. And the doctrine of providence, uh, the doctrine of miracles, prayer, angels, Satan's and de- Satan and demons, all that uh, Grudem puts under the doctrine of God. Then third, we looked um, as we resumed systematic theology, we began with the doctrine of man. The creation of man, male and female, essential nature of man's sin, covenants between man, God and man. Then we talked about part four, the doctrines of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. We looked at the person of Christ and the atonement. Uh, now we're kind of in the middle of sub, uh, sub part three here on part four, resurrection and ascension. So tonight we're going to finish looking at the doctrine of the resurrection, Christ's resurrection, and the doctrine of uh, Christ's ascension. We'll look at that this time. Next week, God willing. Uh, actually, next week, we're not doing it. Uh, I forgot that. Next week, remember, it's Thanksgiving week. There'll be nothing here at all on Wednesday night. Nothing here on Wednesday night. Tuesday night, there'll be a Thanksgiving dinner with some testimonies and some opportunity to give thanks to the Lord for various things. But we will not have a regular program here next week. So God willing, we'll resume in two weeks. Okay? Uh, but we'll look at the offices of Christ. Uh, basically, that would be um, prophet, priest, and king. How Christ is prophet, priest, and king. That'll be in two weeks. And then the work of the Holy Spirit. Then we'll be looking at the doctrine of the application of redemption grace, election and reprobation, the gospel call and effective calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, turn the page, adoption, sanctification, baptism and filling with the Holy Spirit, the perseverance of the saints, death in the intermediate state, glorification and union with Christ. All of that is the work of the application of, of the atonement. That basically um, it's what God does to bring the atonement to us. It's what God does um, to save us, to save us from our sins. Uh, and then uh, part six is the doctrine of the church. What is the church? Its nature, its marks, its purposes, the purity and unity of the church, the power of the church, church government, means of grace within the church, baptism, Lord's Supper, worship, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, specific gifts, all that's the doctrine of the church. How does the church get built up? Um, and I think about that a lot. And then finally, uh, part seven, the doctrine of the future, the return of Christ, when and how, the millennium, final judgment, eternal punishment, new heavens and new earth. That's the overview of systematic theology according to Wayne Grudem. Uh, those are what he thinks are all the topics you need to cover in order to be uh, thoroughly trained theologically. Okay, So that's where we are on the roadmap. I just wanted to, to establish this. We're right in the middle talking about the person of Christ and specifically his resurrection. So if you would take the sheet that says Resurrection and Ascension Part 2. We're looking at that. Now already we've looked at the resurrection of Christ. We have seen that the New Testament is replete with uh, testimony that Christ has risen from the dead it is a major, major theme. Every one of the Gospels ends with it. It's the climax of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of Acts begins with Christ giving 40 days of instruction after his resurrection. And then throughout the book of Acts, we saw constant references to the resurrection. And I remember making the point at that time, when you, in your personal evangelism, as you're witnessing, uh, always it's vital for us to refer to the resurrection. It is the resurrection that sets Christianity apart from all the other religions. All religions have some approach to sin and death and all that and philosophically, but there is no one like Christ. Only Jesus holds the keys of death and hell. Isn't that wonderful to think about? In the book of Revelation, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus said that. He is the only one that does. Uh, he has that power to uh, be raised from the dead. And the New Testament is filled with evidence of his resurrection. We have talked about the nature of Christ's resurrection. It was not simply a resuscitation like Lazarus's. Remember what the difference is between those that Christ raised from the dead and Christ's own resurrection. What's the difference? They died again. 
Lazarus died. Uh, uh, the widow at Nain, her son died. Jairus' daughter died. Okay, all of them are dead now. And so they were resuscitated, really. It's like being awake, awakened from sleep. They were awakened up into the kind of life that they were living beforehand. That's all. Um, obviously, I would say before their illness. So he would raise them up healthy. But um, uh, Jesus was raised in a resurrection body. And so an entirely different um, issue, his resurrection. Uh, there was continuity, but there was difference. Jesus had his wounds in his hand. You could see that. He was he himself. So he said, see, it is I myself. What is he saying when he says that? I'm the one that you have known. I'm the one you ate with. I'm the one who taught you. I'm the same one. I'm alive now. So there's continuity, but there's also difference. Jesus somehow looked different. Uh, he had to reveal himself to his disciples or they would not recognize him. So there's that continuity and difference. We've seen that. We saw that it was definitely a physical body. He said, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So you could, you could feel him. You could, you could feel like his joints, I guess. I, I mean, flesh and bones. It's really an amazing thing, but he really was physically raised from the dead. He had a physical body. We believe in what we call the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is uh, essential to our faith as we talk about. And we talked about the issue of special powers, walking through walls, all that kind of thing. Um, I believe he did that definitely at the tomb. He moved or some way passed through a wall in the tomb. Uh, and then the angel came down later and moved the stone to show that he was gone. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. And so it wasn't Jesus saying, anytime now, angel, let me out. I need to get out. He was gone. He was already gone. So he had that uh, incredible power. Wayne Grudem uh, downplays that whole thing because he wants to emphasize that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And I, I respect that. I really do. But I just think there's some mysteries to the resurrection body we don't understand. It can be both a physical body that has flesh and bones, as you see he has, and yet can do things that it couldn't do before. Um, and that's an amazing thing. All right. Now, this is where we're at in our study. Um, both the Father and the Son participate in the resurrection. Here we get into some mysteries. We know and we speak readily of the Father raising his own Son from the dead. The Father raised Christ from the dead. Acts 2.24, it says, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death uh, to keep its hold on him. Uh, this is a very strong emphasis in Acts 13 because there it quotes uh, Psalm 2. Uh, it says, we tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, uh, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Very interesting application of Psalm 2 there by, uh, by the Apostle Paul. Basically, to some degree, Jesus was, was, um, was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection. So that's the nature of the language. You are my son, today I have begotten you or today I have become your father. We do not imagine like the Arians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, that there was a time that Jesus didn't exist. So we don't stumble over the word today in Psalm 2 saying, today I have begotten you. But we believe that the father raised his son from the dead. And we speak that way. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today being the resurrection day. So I think if anything, it's more of a declaration to the world. He is truly my son, just as he claimed to be. Yeah, and, and think how important that is. Think how vital that is. What was the issue that got him condemned by the Jews? Saying he, that he was the son of God. Tell us if you were the Christ, the son of God. It's one thing to claim to be the Christ, but they were expecting him to be the son of David. It's a whole other thing, this blasphemy, that he, a mere man, would make himself equal to God because he was claiming, claiming to be the son of God. Well, 
God the Father, by his resurrection, validated Jesus' claim. He is my son, just as he did at his baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He does the same thing in his resurrection. So God the Father raised his son from the dead, raised him up. Also says in Romans 6, 4, we were there, therefore buried uh, with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. You see that? The glory of the Father. It was the glory of the Father to raise his son from the dead. Uh, and so God demonstrated his power. And by the way, uh, we shouldn't uh, be concerned about that and think only Jesus has the power of death. Um, it says very plainly in John chapter 5, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So it's, it's the Father's work to resurrect and it's also the Son's work. So we see that uh, very plainly. So the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But interestingly, Christ also raised himself from the dead. You think, how can that be? Well, I don't know. I'm just telling you what the verses say. But this is in John chapter 2. Remember what it said in John chapter 2, in verse 18 and following. This is after Jesus cleansed the temple, I believe the first time. I think there was at least two temple cleansings, beginning of his public ministry and the end of his public ministry. Um, And so he cleansed the temple and they tell us, uh, you know, tell us by what power, what authority you did this. You know, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, this is a very interesting challenge. Jesus is, he's just, you never know what you're going to get from him. You know, they come and say, show us a miraculous sign. And this time he says, all right, I'll tell you what, you destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Are they going to destroy that? What did they think he meant at that point? What do they think he was talking about? Herod's temple, the building. Were they going to meet the opening condition of the test? No way. All right. So, you know, it's an odd kind of thing saying, all right, I'll show you a miracle if you're willing to destroy the temple. Uh, They were willing to destroy the temple. He meant, though, they were very willing to meet the condition and he knew it. He knew very well they were going to meet the opening condition and he would give them a sign. It was a sign of Jonah resurrection. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's going to come up. He's going to come alive. They would meet the condition, but they didn't understand his saying. Uh, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, there's so much truth in here. One of the things is, why did Jesus call his body a temple? Why? What was the temple used for? Worship, but what, what was, how do they do it? Animal sacrifice. That was the place where the atonement was done. And so also in the book of Hebrews, it says that he has opened for us a new and living way into the Holy of Holies. Uh, that is his body. Namely, it is by means of his body that we enter into the... So his body is the temple. It's the true temple. And frankly, it is the true temple. And the other temple is not even the real one. It's a, it's a shadow, a replica. And so he's actually talking about the real temple. But the point I'm making in quoting this is... Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. What is he claiming there? He's going to raise himself from the dead. He's going to raise himself from the dead. All right, look at the next one. In John chapter 10. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. See what it says? I lay down my life, I take it up again. Verse 18. No one takes it from me, he said, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down And I have the authority to take it up again. 
this command I received from my father. What is he claiming there? What is he claiming? What, what power does he claim to have there? Yeah, the front end is no one has the power to kill me if I don't give it to him. I actually said that to Pilate. You know, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. You couldn't kill me. You and all your legions. One word and you're all dead. So, I mean, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. It's a voluntary choice on my part. I lay it down. But what's, what else does he claim? He has, right. So he can die anytime he wants. Isn't that amazing? Can you die anytime you want? Think about it. Some people say, well, I can kill myself. Can you? What's really interesting about that, you know, there is an occasion in, in the Old Testament of suicide. And that is the, the case of King Saul. And Saul kills himself by falling on a sword. You remember the case? He's wounded and he falls on his own sword. He kills himself. He takes his life. But what's so interesting is in the aftermath, in the account, it said that Saul had been wicked and therefore God killed him. God put him to death. It's a fascinating thing. Very, very insightful on the issue of suicide. No one has power to take their own life. The days of our, our days are ordained by God. We don't have ultimate power over them. But Jesus was different. He had the power to die anytime he wanted. And therefore, he died rather quickly in, in crucifixion, didn't he? Remember how Pilate was shocked how quickly he died? Remember what he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he said, it is finished. And he pillows his head down on his chest and just dies. I laid down my life. I just, I'm, I've, I've met, everything's done. All the scriptures are fulfilled. There's nothing more to do. And so he dies. And just in time too, because they're about to come and break his bones. Everything's timing. It's really quite remarkable. But Jesus has absolute power to lay down his life. He can do it anytime. He can take it off like a garment. I can take off my life like a garment. I can do that. I also have the power to put it back on again. I can, I can take it back up again. And then he says, my ability to raise myself up from the dead is not mine alone, but the Father gave it to me. This command I received from my Father. So we see that the Father raised the Son and Jesus also raised the Son. And then Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection. So Jesus is the resurrection. And finally, we also see that the Holy Spirit was active in the resurrection. Uh, Romans 1, 4, it says that Jesus, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Romans 1, 4 is claiming that Jesus was raised from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand all that? How the Father raised Jesus, how the Son raised Jesus, how the Spirit raised Jesus? Do you understand? I don't. I don't understand how the Trinity works. But I know that all through the Scripture evidence that all three were active in the resurrection of Christ. And by the way, you'll find that to be the case in any significant issue in redemptive history. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always working in total concert. They're all active in it. Okay, so the resurrection was a cooperative work in the Trinity, giving glory to all three persons. Now, what is the doctrinal significance of the resurrection? Is this an important doctrine? Now, I caught a little bit of flack on the three parts or two parts of humanity. You're wondering, why do we spend a whole evening on that? And my answer to that was, is the next chapter in Grudem. I mean, what could I do? There was nothing. I was bound to teach the next chapter in Grudem. Okay, but on this one, we don't need to wonder whether this is an important doctrine or not. We don't need to wonder because Jesus... Um, Sorry, the Apostle Paul has given us a whole chapter on the importance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 is basically an entire chapter on this doctrine. So I really have just given you a little subsection of that whole argument. But in 1 Corinthians 15, he just goes through the whole thing and he says, first of all, it has been proclaimed that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He was seen by witnesses. It was testified to by the, script, uh, by the, by the Old Testament scripture. 
But then he goes on to talk about the significance of it. And look at verse 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians 15. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Now, what is he saying when he says our preaching is useless and so is your faith? Okay. So that means our entire Christian lives are based on whether Jesus was bodily, physically raised from the dead. Is that true? If he has not been raised, then Christianity is null and void. Zero is zilch. It's nothing. It's a lie. That's the way the Apostle Paul thought. But do you know how many interesting Christian thinkers there are these days that talk about how it really doesn't matter that much whether Jesus raised, was raised from the dead? One, one man, I think it was in the Episcopal Church, whatever, is a, you know, one of these amazing thinkers talking about Christianity. And he's saying, it really is totally immaterial to me. It, may, it matters not at all if, if they produced the body, the skeleton of Jesus. Wouldn't change my views at all. I would still be a Christian. I'm thinking, well, you and Paul have a major disagreement. He said, I'd give it up. <laughs> I'd, I'd wonder what it was I saw on the road to Damascus and I'd go to my grave wondering what it was. But I, I'm finished. I am not a Christian anymore if you can produce you know, the body of Jesus, if Jesus has not been raised. But of course, Paul plays with the idea if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, but eventually he can't go on very long. He says, but Christ has been raised. It's a fact. It's occurred. Uh, our whole faith is based on it. This is a very significant uh, doctrine, okay? Romans 10:9. it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what does that tell you? What does it tell you about the importance of the resurrection for you personally? If you do not believe the bodily resurrection of Christ, you're not a Christian. Even if you write books and say that you are a Christian. <laughs> All right? You're not. Romans 10.9 says you're not. You have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And therefore, at our time of baptism, one of the questions I ask is, do you believe that uh, Christ was raised from the dead, bodily raised from the dead on the third day? Yes. We, we've cleared all that beforehand. We don't bring them into the water unless we're sure, okay? I don't want any surprises, no shocks at that moment, okay? No, I want to know ahead of time. So we've, we've been through it, okay? But I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, you know, if they said, no, I don't, I'd say, okay, this ends the baptism, we'll get back to you, all right? And we'd, we'd end it right there. I'm not going to baptize somebody who doesn't claim to believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. All right, so that's the first uh, level. First of all, the bodily resurrection of Christ is not debatable or an optional doctrine. It is at the core of our faith. We must have this. It's, it's essential. Or as uh, Tori and the others you know, say, it's a fundamental. And so that's where the whole fundamentalism comes from. It's a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. Secondly, Christ's resurrection ensures our regeneration. Uh, Paul drank, directly links the power of God in raising Christ from the dead physically to the power of God in raising us from the dead spiritually. It's so, so important. I, I, I really am very grateful for the scholars who went through the Bible and divided it into chapters and then later on into verses. It's helpful to us. But sometimes you can miss the flow of an argument. You can think that because Ephesians 1 has come to an end and Ephesians 2 has now begun that we're into some whole new thing. But we're not. The fact of the matter is Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in, in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Three things, hope, riches, 
power. He wants them to know that. He wants them to know how much hope there is and what is the hope of their calling. Secondly, he wants them to know how rich they are in Christ. You should know that. You should know how rich you are in Christ. You may not feel rich, but you are. If you're a Christian, you are incredibly wealthy. And third, you need to know how much power is at work to get you to your inheritance. All right? And there is incredible power. And he says that power that's at work in your soul, that that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, that's beautiful language and there's so much truth in there, but don't miss what he's saying. He's saying the power that got Jesus from the grave up out of the grave and up at the right hand of God is the same power that's at work in you. It's the same power. And and so that ends chapter one, but don't end it there. And you also were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's what it says. Do you see the parallel? The same power that raised Jesus physically up from the grave and caused him to go through the heavens and sit at God's right hand, an infinite journey, friends, is also at work inside you, raising you from the dead spiritually. That's already happened if you're a Christian. And he will complete the journey in you until you are with Christ forever and ever. Isn't that beautiful? He prays that you would know that kind of power. So what am I saying? The Christ's resurrection guarantees the completion of our spiritual journey. Isn't that wonderful? That's the link that Paul gives us in Ephesians 1 and 2. Okay. Um, Peter also explicitly links Christ's resurrection and our new birth. Look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, what is that saying? It's saying that Christ, that, that your hope, the hope of your soul, the hope of your salvation is linked to Christ's living body. Do you see that? It's, it's linked so that if Christ's body can die, your hope can die. But if Christ's body cannot die, your hope cannot die. They're just linked. And so we have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So link it with that too. I can lose my inheritance if Jesus' body can die a second time. Can it? Is there any power in the universe strong enough to kill Jesus a second time? He died once and he'll never die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He is done with death. He holds the keys of death and hell. He is done with death forever. So what that means is that I will most certainly get my inheritance. I have a living hope that can never die. I have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for me, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Isn't that wonderful? Shielded by God's power. What would it be like if you weren't? Think of what your life would be like if you were not shielded by God's power, but you are. 
you're protected. And you say, well, I still suffer. I still have temptations. I still have troubles. Well, because God in his wisdom allows those things to come to you as he filters them, as he mandates them, as he ordains them. But you're still shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And by the way, that's just another good indication of how salvation is not merely justification. There's still yet a future salvation for us. We're waiting for it. So let's not be immature in the use of the word salvation or saved. Okay, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will yet be saved in the future. There's a salvation yet to come. We look forward to that. But at any rate, Jesus' resurrection gives us a living hope. It's very important, this doctrine. Paul links the ongoing power of the new birth to gain more and more victory over indwelling sin to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Romans 6, 1 through 4, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So that means your power to live a new life, not a pagan life, not that old life, but a new life is linked to Christ's resurrection. His resurrection power is at work in you. And and so you can say no to sin. You can count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what Romans 6 teaches. That's the whole pattern of sanctification. You reckon, you consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. And it is the power of Christ's resurrection in you that enables you to make that no to ungodliness, make it stick. You have the power to say no to sin. Isn't that wonderful? I was saying recently to somebody, there's a parallelism in the internal and external journey of Satan's, Satan's strategy. All right? Internal journey is growth in sanctification, being more and more like Jesus. Internal journey. External journey is worldwide evangelization to the ends of the earth so that every tribe and language and people and nation will be represented at the throne. Okay? Those are the two things God's left us here to do. Well, Satan doesn't want either one to happen. And what I have noticed is his strategy on both is about the same. Do you know what his strategy is on the internal journey? To convince you that you actually still are a slave to sin, so why bother fighting it? What can you do? I mean, sooner or later you're going to give in, so you might as well just give in, right? Sooner or later, you know, what's the point in trying to change your essential nature? If you are irritable, if you're prideful, if you're lazy, if you're lustful, if you're greedy, if you're gluttonous, if you're whatever, you will always be that way and there's no point in even trying to change. Have you ever heard the devil say those kind of things to you? And my feeling is you need to call him out. He's a liar. Romans 6 says, I'm not a slave to sin. But what is his goal? His goal is to get you to not put on your armor and go fight him. It's to get you laying back at home and doing nothing on the internal journey. Just whatever. I can't make any progress, so why even try? Does he do the same thing on the external journey? You better believe he does. What can I do for the teeming billions of Asia? Well, God is not calling you to do anything for the teeming billions of Asia. He's calling you to do the good works that he has ordained in advance that you should walk in them. Now, prayer can take in the teeming billions of Asia. So in prayer, you can. But are you going to lead a billion people to Christ? Maybe you will. I don't know. But boy, is that going to be a busy life. All right? A billion's a lot of people. All right? What I think you ought to do is to go out and do the good works that God has ordained for you to do. Go be bold and go do them. And let the Lord decide how great and magnificent those works are. But, but go do them. But what the devil convinces you is that you can't make any difference. You can't do anything on the abortion issue. You can't do anything on poverty. There's nothing you can do on hunger and homelessness. You can't do anything to lead people to Christ. I mean, nothing. So why even try? Do you see the similarity of the devil's strategy? And what I'm saying is we have to say, no, the power of the resurrected Christ is in me. I can put sin to death and it will be effective. And I can minister to my surrounding world and it will be effective. So I'm going to go do it. And I'll leave the scope of that to God. God decides the scope. 
But I, I have to be faithful. So anyway, we need to know. Galatians 2.20 says it so beautifully. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He lives in us by his spirit. Isn't that powerful? We feel his spirit inside us. He's alive in us. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's so beautiful. So anyway, Paul links the ongoing power of the new birth to making spiritual progress on the internal external journey. The power of that he links to the resurrection because Christ has been raised from the dead. We can live a new life. We can be bold and we can be successful in these endeavors. Thirdly, Christ's resurrection ensures our justification. This is a little bit an odd teaching, but it's only taught in one passage in the Bible. It's in Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, in most other places, justification is linked to Christ's death. It's linked to his blood shed on the cross. Why here is it linked to a a resurrection? The only, I guess, attempt I can make to explain this is that Christ's resurrection was evidence or proof to the surrounding world that we have been justified, that God has accepted the payment on our behalf. So when God raised Christ from the dead, he wasn't just justifying his son, saying he is my son. He was also justifying all who believe in him that they are also forgiven because his blood has been accepted. So I think that's what it means when it says he was raised to life for our justification. Without Christ's triumph over sin and death being proved by God raising him from the dead, we would have no vindication over our enemies and we would have no assurance of justification. Jesus would just be a defeated, dead Jewish carpenter. He would be a, a cult leader, a false, false prophet because he said he would rise from the dead. He'd be, we would have no vindication of our faith. So. All right, fourth, Christ's resurrection ensures that we will receive perfect resurrection bodies as well. Boy, I'll tell you, the older I get, the more I'm looking forward to it. I am looking forward to this. Christ's resurrection ensures we will receive... Pers- All right, look what it says, 1 Corinthians six fourteen. By his power... God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you see the link? Isn't that beautiful? He will raise us also. First Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So in other words... We don't, we don't come to funerals the way that the hopeless do that, that have no resurrection hope. We come to them differently. We have a different attitude. We believe that Jesus, because he died and rose, rose again, we also, we who die, we will rise again as well. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. This is a promise of bodily resurrection through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Doesn't that teach you that no one but Jesus has the resurrection body now? I think, I think we need to know our doctrines. We need to understand the significance of verses and then make bold statements based on them. I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that we will not get our resurrection bodies until he comes. When he comes, then the rest. And therefore, the disembodied spirits of, of the righteous that have gone before us They are spirits of righteous men made perfect, it says in the book of Hebrews, but they do not have resurrection bodies. They're waiting for us. 
And if we die and the Lord hasn't returned yet, we'll be waiting for the later generations too so that we all together will receive our resurrection bodies. And then we will be like him. We will be like him. He has a resurrection body. We get one too. Uh, Colossians 1.18, it says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He's the firstborn. He's the first fruits. Do you see that? It means others will come. There'll be a, a big harvest. We'll all get resurrection bodies. All right. Now, what is the ethical significance of the resurrection? We looked at the doctrinal significance of the resurrection. What is the ethical? Well, first, there's perseverance in ministry. Paul gives us this one. Again, 1 Corinthians 15:58. And again, I can't encourage you strongly enough. If you want to learn more about the resurrection, you want to learn more about resurrection body, the text book is 1 Corinthians 15. Study that. Study that more than Grudem, more than listening to my lectures or anybody else. Just read 1 Corinthians 15 if you really want to know and learn about the resurrection. That's the most extended treatment of it in the Bible. But 1 Corinthians 15 says, Therefore, after all this teaching in 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection of the body, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, because of Christ's resurrection victory, everything we do to serve him and to advance the kingdom by bringing lost people into life in Christ will have eternal significance and value. You know, I mean, apart from this, why serve Christ? Think about it. I mean, according to 1 Corinthians 15, serving Christ in this world puts us at a disadvantage in this world. I know it's hard for us American Christians to know that, but it really is true. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we're above all men to be pitied. In other words, Paul's faith in Christ put him at a disadvantage in the world. And he said, if you could convince me that Christ has not been raised from the dead, I would stop my ministry now and I would eat, drink and be merry. That's what I would do. That's what Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, let's just have a good time. Let's just party. Or as others, you know, have done, let's just commit suicide and be done with it. Like Nietzsche and others. I mean, you get to the point, what's the point? If there's no resurrection then let's just be done with it because the suffering outweighs the pleasure and so they just kill themselves. But there is a resurrection and therefore there's ethical significance to everything we do. Everything we do matters because this life is not all we are living for. There is a significance to everything we do in life. Also, there's the issue of future heavenly reward. The resurrection is the time when all the sufferings of this life, especially those in ministry, will be fully repaid. Uh, It says in Luke 14, 13 and 14, When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? And Jesus said, basically, put yourself constantly at an earthly disadvantage in your ministry. That's what he's getting at. Uh, So we should set our hope in a future time of reward to give us great endurance and suffering for Christ. As we already mentioned, 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? That's a good question. Why, why am I doing this? You know, the Holy Spirit warns me that in every city, prison and hardships are facing me. Oh, okay. Well, now that I know what to expect, why should I keep doing it if Christ has not been raised? That's what he's working at. He says, I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Uh, Just forget ministry if there's no resurrection. Also, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. These are just such sweet verses. By the way, Colossians 3, 1 through 17 or so. Those are like the verses for if you're not happy, just read those and put those verses into practice. All right. Those are the verses to remedy you if you have lost perspective in the Christian life and you're not happy. All right. 
And that's what it is, isn't it? A loss of perspective. So it says in Colossians 3, 1, 1 through 4, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So in other words, think about it. Have a feast for the mind every day. Remind yourself that every day brings you closer to glory. Every day brings you closer to seeing God face to face. Remind yourself. Think about that. You're not just allowed to do it. You're commanded to do it here in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Set your hearts on on what you're going to get when Christ returns. Live for that. And then thirdly, personal holiness in daily life. Uh, We've already covered Romans 6, 4. It's a power for uh, holiness. Uh, Romans 6, 9 through 12 says... We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. So, ethical significance of the resurrection. Any questions about the doctrine of the resurrection? Really, any questions? Any at all? I really mean it before we go on to ascension. Okay, let's look at ascension. Christ's ascension into heaven. What happened to Christ when he ascended to heaven? And what is meant by the states of Jesus Christ? I'm actually not going to do much with the states of Jesus Christ. I don't know what it means. So, I mean, it's at the end there. You can read it. But we'll talk about that at the end if we have time. We've already looked at resurrection. Let's talk about ascension. First of all, Christ ascended. He ascended to a place. After his resurrection, Christ spent 40 days with his apostles. The story of this is told in Acts 1, 8, Acts 1, uh, 1 through 7. Okay? So if you want to know what Jesus did for those 40 days, basically he taught them scripture. He taught them the Bible. He taught them everything that was written about himself in the Old Testament. In the law of Moses, the writings, the prophets. He taught them about himself. So that Peter's up there on the day of Pentecost giving all these amazing quotations from Joel and from Psalm 16 and for all this, just just the Old Testament scholar, Peter the fisherman, you know? Well, where did he get it? He got it from the greatest Old Testament scholar there ever was, the one who wrote the text by the power of the Spirit, Jesus. And so for 40 days, Jesus was eating with them, eating fish, you know, doing other things, just spending time with them and teaching them about the kingdom of God, teaching them about the kingdom. Um, and at the end of that time, he ascended into heaven. Now, uh, Luke 24, 50 through 53 gives us the one account and uh, Acts 1 gives us the other. It says, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returning to Jerusalem and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. That's Luke 24. Then Acts 1, 8 through 12 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day walk from the city. So there's a picture of it right there. Best one I could find on the internet. But that's the place where he ascended. Have you ever watched, uh, maybe when you were a child, you got one of those helium-filled balloons 
and it wasn't tied tightly around your wrist. Did you ever have that experience? And so up it goes, and the only thing you can get is you get all your pleasure in about a minute and a half at that minute. And you're just standing and watching, and it just goes higher and higher and higher. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I, I sense that's about how it was. They, they're just standing, and they're just their necks are craning, and they're trying to get a better vantage, and they're shielding their eyes from the sun, and they're just looking. And then Jesus is going up higher and higher and getting smaller and smaller. And then, you know, he goes up into a cloud, and that's it. And they can't see him anymore, and they're still standing and looking. And you get the feeling they'd still be here to be there today, if other than death, except that the angel sent and said, okay, time to move on now. We have some other things to do. Don't stand here and wait for him to come back. It's going to be a while, okay? I think we should always be ready for the second coming, but that was too ready, you know? Um, they, they needed to go back. There was work to be done. And so he said, go back. And, and there's, But they're, they're just looking. And they say, don't stand here looking at this guy. He's going to come back. And then they return to Jerusalem. So, and since then, what a journey it's been for the church since that point. Think about it. I mean, those are the apostles. They're standing there looking up and the walk back into the city and what a journey for 2,000 years the church has been on ever since. Uh, what plans God had at that moment to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. What an exciting story it's been. Beautiful. All right, the key insight, though, is that Jesus went to a place. Now, I know that's hard for us to think, but Jesus has a body, doesn't he? I asked somebody recently, I said, does Jesus have a human body right now? And they told me no. I said, well, when did he lose it? <laughs> I mean, he was bodily raised. Did he lose it in ascension? No, he's got one right now. Remember he said, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Does he still have that stuff that they touched? Now. Yes, say yes, he does. Yes, he has a resurrection body. Now. He is still human. He still has a resurrection body now. That means it's in a place somewhere in some sense. Now, I told you that it is a spiritual body and therefore I don't fully understand it. But the scripture always speaks of a place. The Greek word is topos. It's a place that he goes. Um, now, you've heard perhaps of the story of uh, Yuri Gagarin, Soviet cosmonaut. In 1961, became the first person to orbit the earth. He rode Vostok 1 around the earth, 24,800 miles around experienced weightlessness for 89 minutes, and he said, I don't see any God up here, uh, speaking from orbit. So he said, I've gone higher than the clouds, and I haven't seen Jesus yet. Um, so he spoke. A human, humorous response to Gagarin was given at that time. All he had to do was step outside his capsule without a spacesuit, and he had seen God immediately. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so at any rate, I like our brothers and sisters that are clever and can come up with those kind of things. So at any rate... Um, Christ, however, for all the scoffing, did ascend uh, to a place. He ascended, a cloud hid him from their sight. The angels told Jesus he would come back in the same way. They'd seen him go into heaven. And Jesus continued in his resurrection body and went to some place which is called heaven. Now, there are many supporting scriptures. Elisha and the chariots of fire existing in some spiritual realm surrounding us. Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Stephen's death, it said, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man uh, standing at the right hand of God. Jesus taught about heaven as if it were a place. In John 1.51, he said, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Also in John uh, 3.13, no, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And then, very strongly, Jesus' statement in, about his father's house. In my father's house are many rooms. If I were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare 
a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, should have been underlined, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. That's three times he uses that word topos. Three times he's talking about a place. Now, those, the, the use of the word topos or place there, coupled with the knowledge that Jesus is still in his resurrection body, tells us that there must be some dimension or place that is called heaven. Now, that it goes beyond our understanding of the physical universe should not surprise us. That Elisha can pray, Lord, open his eyes, and then boom, his servant sees immediately a world surrounding us that we cannot see. It should not surprise us that there's more here than meets the eye. That we we know that by faith that the physical universe was created out of things that are not seen. So that the, the things that are not seen are more real to some degree or more permanent than those things that are seen. These things are, are impermanent. But that place is a real place. Um, by the way, heaven is often depicted as up or above. How many times do you see this in Scripture? Jesus looked upward to pray. In Luke 9.16, it says, Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. How, what do you make of this language? Looking up to heaven. Is heaven up? Apparently it is. I, you know, that's what, that's what the scripture says. He looked up to heaven. Jesus ascended into heaven. He went up. All right. In Mark 7, 33 and 34, he took him aside away from the crowd. Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears. He spit and touched the man's tongue. Then he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephathah, which means be opened. Also in John 11, 41 through 43, they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, etc. Jesus looked up when he prayed. Secondly, Jesus, it says, descended from heaven in his incarnation. John 6, 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus descended from heaven. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 6, 62. What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Well, they did. We just read that in Acts 1. They did see him ascend to where he was before. They watched it. Uh, thirdly, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven, it says in Revelation 21.2. I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The fact that we cannot see it merely points to our own spiritual blindness. It's there and it's up. All right. Uh, it's uh, the truth about heaven. It's a place and it's up in some way. Christ received glory and honor that had not been uh, his before as the God-man. So what are we talking about? First of all, what happened when Christ ascended? Well, first of all, he went to a place. Secondly, he received a glory and honor that was not his in his incarnate, incarnate state before he ascended. In John 17, 5, it says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Uh, in Acts 2.33, it says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the, fa- the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Acts 5.31, God exalted him to his own right hand as Prince and Savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Now, notice both in Acts 2.33 and Acts 5.31, it says God exalted him. God exalted him. Now, think about this for a minute. Pilgrim's Progress depicts Christian and hopeful Um, going through the river and then they're met by a bunch of angels who give them by many signs and indications a sense of their pleasure and joy at escorting them into 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 heaven right 
And so also it says that we will receive in another scripture a rich welcome into heaven. Well, if we who are so feeble and sinful receive a rich welcome into heaven, what was Jesus's welcome like? When Jesus came into the presence of God, having accomplished everything God wanted him to do, when he received back the glory he had from the Father before the creation of the world, what a, what a moment that must have been. What incredible glory and honor must have been accorded to him. How the elders fell down in front of him. And, and they've been doing it ever since. But what a, what a moment, a surge of joy and worship there must have been in heaven when Jesus, having completed everything, ascended and went into the presence of the Father and sat at the right hand. What an exciting moment that must have been. Just imagine it and think about it. Think high thoughts of Jesus. Really, think exalted thoughts. I mean, you can't, can't go wrong by doing that. Philippians 2.9, remember this. Therefore, uh, let's start at the beginning. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Now, that's what I'm asking you to imagine what that was entailed. As Jesus goes into heaven, he is escorted to the highest place. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's the thing. Remember how Jesus said, he said, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their high officials, they exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So that means the more you serve, the greater is your position in heaven, right? But the greatest position in heaven is already given. The highest place is already taken and you're not going to get it. And you don't want it anyway, do you? It belongs to Jesus. He is the greatest servant that there ever has been. He served everyone to the, even to the point of dying on the cross. And therefore, he gets the highest place. He gets the first place, exalted to the highest place. Remember how James and John asked to sit at his right and his left? It's like, you don't know what you're asking. <laughs> you don't understand. He said, those places, and by the way, again, so that word places, those places have been prepared for those uh, that my father's chosen, all right? There are places like that. I'm not denying it. I'm just saying we're not ready to talk about that right now, all right? He said, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Oh, we can. They said, well, <laughs> you will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. They, those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. Okay, so Jesus received glory and honor that had not been his in his resurrected, uh, sorry, in incarnate state before. Uh, Revelation 5, 11 and 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. Thirdly, Christ was seated at God's right hand, as we already mentioned. This is mentioned so many times in Scripture that it's good for us to meditate on what it means. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He's ascended and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. It's in the Creed. Even better, it's in Scripture. Hebrews 1.3, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, this seating of Christ is a display of God's favor to him and of his authority and the completion of his work. You know, we think of somebody being, you know, the right-hand man um, or sitting at the right hand. What it means is Jesus is at the place of ultimate power. 
You could also imagine that God the Father's power, His right hand, goes through the Son to accomplish everything. Everything is done in conjunction with the Son. He's not doing anything apart from the Son. So right through the Son, the power is is, is worked. Um, Ephesians 1.19, we've already quoted. Jesus, um, uh, God the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. So he's right there at the right hand of God. Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's a terrifying verse if you're an enemy of Jesus. All right? <laughs> we said before, Christ is a magnificent, wonderful, delightful Savior, but he is a terrifying enemy. And so basically, but look at this. This, I believe, is a measure of the zeal of God the Father <laughs> to subdue Christ's enemies. He doesn't take it lightly. He is patient and he waits. And he knows who his chosen ones are. And I said many times in the providence of God, because of election, predestination, the things we cannot understand, people who look like enemies end up being magnificent friends, wonderful friends of the gospel, just like Saul of Tarsus. So he is patient and he waits for them to come to repentance. But all I'm saying is, when he says, sit at my right hand and watch what I do to your enemies, he says, your work is finished. Let me work now. Let me, let me subdue all your enemies. It's a marvelous thing. 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, this does not mean that Christ is permanently fixed there as if he cannot move, okay? Sit there and don't move. It's not that. Obviously, he stands up when Stephen, you know, he's welcoming Stephen into heaven as we see in Acts 7. In Revelation 1, 12 through 14, he's moving through the seven golden lampstands, remember? He turns around and sees one like a son of man, and he's glorious and, and, and brilliant, and he's moving through the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches in Asia Minor. The, the image, the vision, in my opinion, represents Christ's active ministry to his churches. He is actively ministering to his churches, and so he's not just sitting there at the right hand of God. He is ministering in some way uh, through the Spirit, I believe, because it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's a complete connection there. But Jesus is active and moving, uh, doing ministry. Uh, fourth, Christ's ascension has doctrinal significance for our lives. Uh, we don't have time for this. We'll cover this uh, more next time. I don't want to hurry through it. So if you have any questions, what we looked at. Yeah, Patty. Yeah, the question is, does the language that Christ sat at the right hand or is at the highest place, is that a new thing or is it something he resumed? I believe it's something he resumed, but it is new because now he's in a human body while doing it. That's the difference. Uh, he said, Father, give me the glory I had with you before the world began, but he didn't have a body at that point. Now he's sitting at the right hand of God in a human body. Think about that. I mean, that's really quite amazing. So here is basically our representative, our human being representative, right up there at the right hand of God Almighty. So I think that's the difference. So it's, it's, he doesn't have more power or more glory than he had before. He says, give me the glory I had with you before the world began. But now he has it in the human body. That's the difference. Any other question? All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the things we've learned tonight about your resurrection and your ascension. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful to minister as you ordain. Lord, help us to do all the good works you've ordained that we should walk in them. God, help us to be evangelistically fruitful. God, what do we have to fear? Lord, we don't need to fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing to us. So, Lord, we're going to get resurrection bodies. What's there to fear? Father, I pray that we would be bold 
I pray that we would witness. I pray that we would witness to, to waiters and waitresses that serve us. I pray that we would be faithful to witness to relatives and co-workers and people we know well. I pray that we would expand the circle of our lives to get involved in the lives of unbelievers so that we can witness to them. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be bold and courageous, to do the good works that you have ordained for us, so that we would be fearless. I pray that the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ would give us a certain fearlessness and boldness in the internal and external journey so that we can be everything you want us to be and we can glorify your name. God, help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.